thank you for leading us to that place, worship team. It has been said before that death really uh, reveals who we really are, that at the point that we're faced with our own mortality, that our truest self is revealed and the deepest parts of our hearts are shown. Um, And as we're looking at the stoning of Stephen today, before we get there, I just wanted to read for you a small collection of the last words of different people before they passed away and the very different reactions people had within this. Thomas J. Grasso, he was a convicted murderer in the United States, and uh, he was sentenced to death and chose for his last words to complain about his final meal. And he said, I did not get my SpaghettiOs, I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. And he chose with his final words to complain about life. Uh, Oscar Wilde, on a, a bit of a lighter note, he was a poet from the 19th century, And he chose to bring a bit of joking into his last words, and he inevitably said as his final words, the wallpaper is dreadful. One of us will have to go. Um, Bringing humor, comedy into it, appreciated. On a a very heavy note, though, a man named Kevin Cosgrove was working at the World Trade Center at the time when the planes ran into it, and he called 911, and his haunting last words were, we're young men, we're not ready to die. We're overlooking the financial center, two broken windows, oh God, oh God. Whether it's, it's fear or, or comedy, complaining or joy, our last moments reveal a lot about who we are and what's really within our hearts. Uh, and this morning we are continuing our series, The Power of the Presence of God, looking at the stoning of Stephen, as we've already said, and what his final moments show about his relationship with God and what was within his own heart. And this year, we've been looking through the broader series of what it means for us to be a a sacred presence in this world, for us to carry God's presence with us, and for that to be sacred, to be glimpses of Christ in the world around us, and to carry His holy presence with us. And, And for the last few weeks, we've been looking through parts of the Bible where God's presence has shown up in incredible ways in spectacular and challenging ways, and at points his presence shows up to humble people, like the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, where where their plans were interrupted by God, or great King Nebuchadnezzar who owned the nation of Babylon, but ended up going mad for seven years because of his own pride. And when we see other stories where we're reminded that God cares for not only the great kings and the leaderships and rulers, but that he cares for every single one of us, And Pastor Dustin led us through the story of God providing oil for the widow. And last week, Pastor Dustin ended up walking through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to come back to this, but they were a couple that had told a lie in their pride to the body of believers and ended up paying the price of their lives for it. And the single greatest line in a sermon I've ever heard was said, tithe or die, that was the best. He's joking, by the way. Um, But as we look at the stoning of Stephen today, one that's not usually included in very many children's graphic Bibles, it's a heavy story, and and especially when we compare it with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But um, let's jump into it. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We'll be reading a little bit in chapter 6 and then jumping through a bit of 7 and 8 here. But Uh, As you guys are turning there, I just want to catch us up on a little bit of the history of what's happening in this period of time. Um, We're coming to the point 
in, in history right after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the world is kind of turned up on its head. The Romans are in control of the land and over all of the people. And, and many people are, are starting to believe in Christ and giving their life to him and following him uh, because of the stories that the apostles and the disciples were sharing. And also, at the same time, there was a growing opposition from the religious leaders who, who were persecuting the Christians at this point. And, and the reason for this was the religious leaders were still trying to hold on to the old covenant that God made with them through the law, through the temple, and through the land. These are the three main ways that God enacted his promise to his people. So as long as they were being obedient to the law, as long as they were living in the promised land, and as long as they were worshiping at the temple or had a temple, then they could meet with God, right? They could know him and continue to follow God. And he said in the Old Testament, if you obey my commands, my presence will go with you. But the Christians, these people who were following this Jesus, were now saying that Jesus had fulfilled the law on our behalf, so we don't have to follow the strict regulations and rules in order to be righteous. Not only that, but through the Holy Spirit, He is with us always. We don't have to live in a specific land or go to a specific place to worship Him because He's with us. There's no longer a need for the law or the temple because Jesus is the fulfillment of both in our lives. And... In response to this, religious people were afraid, and partly they were, they were righteously afraid because if there was someone who was threatening to take away their law, their land, and their temple, then of course they would want to fight against that and try to keep God with them. But we also see that partly they were afraid of just simply losing their place of power, their authority. Right? The people looked to the religious leaders for guidance. They were the ones who enacted the law and made sure that it was being followed by everyone. And there was a certain pride that they wanted to keep in their place of leadership. And so the people, as they looked to them for guidance and leadership, they would turn away from Christ. They would turn away from Jesus. And so that is where we begin this story. In the midst of that tension is where we come to the story of Stephen. So, uh, we're going to start in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 8 uh, down to verse 15, and then we're going to skip around a little bit. So Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, this, was, this was likely just a group of former slaves who had come to faith in Judaism. So they were following the religious leaders at this point. That's likely who this group was at the time. Uh, so the synagogue of the freemen, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up to his wisdom the Spirit had given him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It was radiating, like Moses. It's meant to draw back, call themes on. 
Now, now the Sanhedrin, we'll jump to ahead in a second here. We're going to miss a big uh, portion, though. But the Sanhedrin was the group of the religious leaders at that time. They were the teachers of the law. Uh, they were the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees. It was this group who led the people with the law. Um, and they accused Stephen of breaking the law. And so for the next 53 verses in chapter 7, Stephen walks them through a history of what God has done in the lives of the Israelites. And he walks them through the story of Abraham, how God called him and then led not only his, his sons, the patriarchs, uh, but then he came to Moses, led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And he walks through this whole story. And he also mentions how his people failed time and time again to obey the law. Uh, so we'll pick the reading back up in chapter 7, verse 51. Chapter 7, verse 51. And at the end of his sermon, this is how Stephen closes it. Don't worry, I'm not going to close the sermon like this today. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's not a very happy ending to this story here. Uh, but as, as we look at the power of the presence of God in this story, my hope is that you would be encouraged to have a deeper relationship with God, that you would see the importance of what it means to have a relationship with him, to have a deeper trust and strength and knowledge that he is with us in the midst of everything that we face. Now, now Stephen is described as a very full person. He's not just not hungry, he's a full person. He, he, the text tells us that he's full of the Holy Spirit, that he's full of wisdom. And in the text right before what we just read, it says that he's full of faith, full of grace and power. He's performing miracles. He's working wonders among people. And many people are coming to believe in Jesus through him. And no one can stand up to the wisdom that God's given him as they're arguing with him, trying to decide who's right with him. This No one can stand against it. But what I want to point out is less what he was doing and more the fact that everything that was good within him came from a relationship with Jesus, right? He was full of the Spirit, right? Stephen took time to be filled by the Spirit, right? Stephen was full of wisdom, a wisdom that, as James reminds us, is something that God gives to us as we ask for it. Do you see how his relationship with Jesus was the part of him that enabled to work good in the world. And so what separated Stephen from the accusing crowd, the people that were about to stone him, wasn't that they were arguing two different religions, 
but that Stephen was pursuing a relationship with God while the crowd was pursuing a religion of God. And so after being accused, Stephen tries to address the problem in his sermon. And in it, he calls out three main parts of the Jewish faith that kept them from believing in Jesus. Again, the law, the land, and the temple. Uh, we didn't read through his sermon, so I'll just kind of summarize it a little bit but, uh, as we go along. But remember that in the Old Testament, these were the three parts of their faith that enabled them to know truly who God was. And it was good, right? If they obeyed the law, if they lived in the land, and if they worshipped in the temple, then they always had God with them on their side. And so Stephen, in trying to fight against this belief, he begins by addressing the land. And so he starts with his sermon by bringing up the story of Abraham and how Abraham was called while he was still in the land of the Chaldeans. It wasn't from within the promised land that God spoke. It was from this place. And then he mentions the Israelites who lived in the land of Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, they were still led by God's hand through Moses. And after they came out of Egypt, as they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, God's presence was with them through the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. Right? God, his presence was with them despite the fact that it wasn't within the promised land. And that's what Stephen is trying to point out. And Stephen is trying to emphasize the point that relationship with God is the basis for faith, not a location of where God is. Yes, God had led them to the promised land, and yes, it was good and the place where he would bless them and work with them, but again, being in a specific place does not equate relationship with God. And we might know that truth up here, but has it made the difference down here? As long as, as, long as I go to church service every so often, I've got enough God in my life. And as long as I, I pray at meals, then I still have a relationship with God, right? Right? Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 that a good person brings out of the good treasure, uh, brings out of the good treasure of his heart produces, oh my word, I'm going to read that again. <laughs> a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The only way to have a relationship with God is to allow him to transform our hearts, not just our thoughts. He has to do both, but we have to entrust him to take away from us our hearts of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. And yes, it is terrifying. Hebrews 10 says that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is hard and terrifying work to see our own brokenness, not covering it up, not trying to blame it on someone else, but recognizing it for what it is and bringing that to Jesus. Because it means we have to change. It means we have to do something about it. It is hard work, but it's much worse to fall into the hands of judgment. Jesus says, anyone who falls on me will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom I fall will be crushed. The difference between the accusers, the group that was around Stephen and Stephen, was the depth of their faith. Right? The accusers had a surface faith, one of obedience to be seen as good by others. And Stephen had a deeply rooted faith. Right? And he was obedient to the one who is good. Obedience to be seen as good versus obedience to the one who is good. Which leads us to the next idol that Stephen addressed, the law. As long as the Israelites had the law, they had a way to be righteous in their own eyes and in God's eyes too. 
because that's the way that they paid for their sins, was through sacrifices, yearly, daily. But as long as they had that, again, they had no need for Jesus. As long as they had the rules to follow, they could be good enough on their own, and there was no need for a Savior. In Deuteronomy 28, God said to his people, The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep, his, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Right? It, was, it was amazing. The law is not a bad thing. It was an incredible thing at the time. God worked with his people through a set of regulations, and they could actually find healing if they offered the sacrifices for it. They could find forgiveness, whereas every other nation on earth didn't have that same access to God in the same way. But, as Stephen points out in his sermon, and I hope that we're all realizing at this point, no one ever followed the law perfectly. Yes, it was a good thing, but none of us actually did it. No one did. Right? Along his sermon, Stephen reminds the, or the, the people he's speaking to that the Israelites grumbled against Moses constantly, that they even turned away from him and wanted to go back to Egypt, which was one of the things that God said in his law not to do. Don't go back to Egypt. All of these things were completely against the law that he'd already given them. And so Stephen was trying to point out that the law was never followed perfectly by anyone. Every single person failed to live up to the standards of the rules that God had set. But as long as they had those rules in place, they had no need for Jesus. They thought they were close enough to God, and, and so they didn't need a Savior. Why do I need a Savior when I'm good enough on my own? But even within that belief, they were still failing to follow the law. They neglected to treat each other with mercy and love and instead chose to put importance on offering sacrifices. And how often can we do the same thing? Right? Doing, doing the right thing with the wrong attitude? Serving others because we know it's right, but doing it from a place of bitterness or anger? And why do we do this? Because it's easier to follow rules than it is to have our hearts transformed. Life is much easier in the black and white within the rules than to see tinges of gray and unknown and have ourselves humbled before God. We like the rules, and they are good for so many very reasons, but when it comes to our relationship with God, if we're placing rules above our relationship, we miss the point. And we have a good example of what that looks like in the New Testament Apart from Jesus, the only person in the New Testament who's specifically listed as being blameless is a man named Saul. He followed the law blamelessly. In Philippians 3.6, before Saul was converted and his name changed to Paul, um, he said that, in, in again, Philippians 3.6, that he was blameless with regard to the law. And that's not just like, ah, he made a mistake every now and then. He was blameless. He followed it to the nth degree. And so what did his life look like? the man who followed the law perfectly? Acts chapter 8 tells us that he went around taking Christians from their homes and throwing them in, pr uh, in prison and persecuting them. He was doing the right thing in the wrong way. He was working against God because he was legalistic. Saul cared more about following the rules than about following Jesus. And all of us, to some degree, do the same thing. We can be blinded by our own legalism, just as the religious group was blind to the fact that Stephen was sent by God. I also want to point out that it was fairly obvious he was sent by God. His face was radiating 
That should bring back the story of Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and came back and his face was radiating. They all saw it, even is what the text tells us. And yet they still look for every other evidence. So how do we know if our actions are based in relationship or rules? How can we tell for ourselves? How can we look at our own lives? And to some degree, they're called blind spots for a reason. We need other people within that to help point those out in us. But start by looking at what the fruit of your life is. Do you see the fruit of peace, of love, of joy, of self-control? Or do you see the fruit of legalism, bitterness, anger, right? jealousy, impatience? Finishing the job isn't as important as how well you love others in the work. And even good things like praying over meals, meeting with the church, reading our Bibles can turn into practices of legalism. As one author put it, we can carry God's word with us, we can mark it appropriately, we can thumb it piously, but fail to let it take root in our hearts. And there's a warning for every single one of us here. Not to allow good habits to become practices of religion that ease our guilt and keep us at an arm's distance from Christ. Because when we think we're good enough, we don't need a savior. And I can do enough good on my own to feel good enough about myself. I don't need Jesus. But remember, anyone who falls on Jesus will be broken. But anyone on whom Jesus falls will be crushed. We are broken. Every single one of us. That's kind of the encouraging part too. No one's being singled out. We all are. And we can come to Jesus with our brokenness or we can be crushed under the weight of having to deal with it ourselves. Are you doing this? And my encouragement to you is to remember that it's not a one-time thing. Bringing our, ourselves to Christ and asking for forgiveness isn't just the point of salvation. We need to continue to do this. To continue to bring to Jesus the real parts of our hearts that are broken. We always need to bring our weaknesses to him, not just when we first believe. But aside from these warnings that, that Stephen is listing here in his sermon, God is doing something important in Stephen's life in this story, and his presence is showing up in a profound way for a very good reason. But, like I said, this story can actually be quite jarring when we look at it in context of last week's passage. A few chapters before Stephen, uh, we read about Ananias and Sapphira. They were believers who lied about the amount they gave to the church, and they died because of what their pride led them to do. And yet we come today to this story of a faithful witness, one of the most faithful witnesses and accounts that we have in the Bible, and he was put to death for doing what the Spirit called him to do. Why does God's presence kill Ananias and Sapphira for such a, as we would argue, seemingly small sin, and yet his presence doesn't protect Stephen from a great amount of evil and suffering and death? Or if I could put it in our own terms, why does God punish some sins seriously? Why does he allow great evil to happen in our lives at other times? And this is a question that we have to face in life. And this is one of those things that we can't just push down below the surface, but we have to look at and bring to Jesus. Every sin and walking away from him is serious. He takes every sin very seriously. The cost of sin is death. So why does God allow this to happen to Stephen? I think for a couple good reasons, at least, that we can see in this passage. The first is to remind us that God is always with us. In every moment, we can trust that he is with us. Right, after this incredible sermon, Stephen is dragged away 
Uh, he's stoned to death by the crowd of people around him. And he saw that, or he saw God's presence right before that all happened to him. And it was spectacular. He saw the heavens opened and the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Right? Something very few other people in the entire Bible had ever seen. And Stephen saw that God's glory in incredible ways. And it's also important to notice that Jesus is standing to receive Stephen at this point. But if you look at every other instance of Jesus uh, within the heavenly throne room, he's always seated at the right hand of God. It's never that he's standing. It's important to notice that here, though. We catch a glimpse of how great God's love for us, that even when Stephen was facing the most brutal trial of his life, that even when he was going through the worst pain, that Jesus was standing there with him in the midst of it. And do you see what difference God's presence in his life made that day? Right? His final words were the same as Jesus, that as his accusers hurled down stones upon him that broke his bones and bruised his skin, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Right? How many other last words do we read that were comedic or, or complaining? This is what was within Stephen's heart. He chose to pray for forgiveness for his enemies wasn't about to die with complaints in his life, with fear of what's next, or even about making light of his situation. And do you understand that only good, only true good can be worked through a heart that is transformed? So God's presence showed up in this way to remind us that even in the trials when we can't see what he's doing, when it seems like he's allowing evil to happen, that he's still there with us in that moment. And second, we can learn from God's presence that he allows trials, but that he always promises to work good through them. God takes very seriously threats that are made to his children. But again, he always promises to make good through it. And, and we even see that happening in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. He took their sin very seriously. But God also has a plan and a purpose beyond our ability to see in the moment. Stephen never got to see the good that was worked out because of his martyrdom, but there was a great amount of good. Right? Acts tells us, the, Luke the author says, that the great persecution broke out against the church, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This was actually one of the encouragements that Jesus gave his disciples before he left, that you will preach my words in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And up to this point, they weren't doing it. And so now, after Stephen prayed this prayer after he went through this terrible suffering. God's plan is being enacted. Not only that, but Stephen's trial ended up bringing salvation to many throughout these different lands. It's incredible. Not only that, but it ended up bringing salvation to a man named Saul. The same Saul who would go to write on most of the New Testament letters that we have today. So my question is, what is God working through your trials? You might not see what he's working. You might. Take joy in that if you can. If you can't, be curious. He will bring about good. But remember that God is in control. If he allows something terrible to happen in this world and the reasons aren't clear, you can still be sure that he is with you in those trials and that they are working for good. So where do we go from here? Um, my encouragement is, is, to, is for you to press into your relationship with God not staying in the surface parts of your life, but bringing to him the deepest parts of yourself that you usually cover up and hide away. 
the parts of yourself that we tend to keep hidden. Um, but sometimes even that encouragement can feel vague and unknown, and how do we even do that? So I just want to close with uh, a very short practical encouragement from a book called The Practice, The Presence of God. Uh, in it he writes, God doesn't ask much from us. A little remembering him from time to time. A little adoring of him. Sometimes praying for his grace. Sometimes giving him your sufferings like a gift. Sometimes just thanking him for all the favors he's given you and still gives you. Sometimes just consoling yourself in the middle of your troubles with his presence. So get yourself into training, little by little. And the training goes like this. Worshiping him begging for his grace and offering him your heart right in the middle of your busiest time. We have a God who has made himself available to us, not just through the law, not just through regulations and rules, but through relationship. And that's how we come to know who he is, and that's how we have a transformed heart. So where's the Spirit leading you this week? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you've been working good the Father, behind the scenes when we are distracted, when we don't take note of what you're doing, that you are still there and present and doing good. Father, for the ways that we have we've based our relationship with you on rules, we ask for your forgiveness. Yes, you've put these good rules in place for us to follow that we might know who you are. But Father, help us to know you, not to just act good. Father, I pray for the ways in which we we're turning to ourselves or looking to ourselves to be our savior. Pray that you'd help us, help us to fail in these areas and to rely on you in deeper ways. But again, Father, we thank you that you've come to us so that we can have a relationship with you, so that we can have your spirit's presence with us every second of every day. And Father, we thank you that you've promised us that surely you will be with us even to the very end. So God, we thank you for your great promises and we ask that through your spirit you would spur us on to desire deeper relationship with you this week. Amen.